From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, Griel Marcus has a new Bob Dylan book out. It's called Folk Music, a Bob Dylan biography in seven songs. It starts with Blown in the Wind from 1962 and ends with Murder Most Foul from 2020. We'll speak with him later in the show. But first, John Nichols says... Joe Biden just made marijuana reform a major 2022 issue. Democrats should run with it. That's coming up in a minute. Last week, President Biden granted a full, complete, and unconditional pardon to every American who's been convicted under federal law for simple possession of marijuana. The same week, Republicans escalated their attacks on Democrats for supporting criminal justice reform. For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for the nation. He's somewhere between Denver and Chicago today. Hi, That's John. Good. Hey, John. How are you? Pretty good. So what do Americans think about pardons for marijuana convictions? They love the idea. And I'm not kidding about that. The polling data shows that um, 68 percent uh, to 70%, depending on which poll you look at, says that uh, says Americans think this is a great idea, that expunging the records of people who have uh, busts for um, simple possession of marijuana is something that they favor. And what about Republicans? Do Republicans favor uh, pardons for marijuana possession? They do indeed. In fact, um, Republicans favor it by a majority, well into the mid to high 50s. So it's, a, it's popular. Possession is still a federal crime right now. This pardon doesn't change that. Am I got this right? Um, you are correct, um, because at this point, uh, marijuana is still a what's referred to as a Schedule One drug, and as such, um, it is treated as a dangerous drug. It's, it's listed with heroin and, and drugs such as that. And so, one of the things that Biden did, which was a really good idea, was that in addition to the pardon, he said that the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Justice should open an investigation into whether they should take marijuana off the schedule where it's currently at and list it, you know, if they list it at all, in a more reasonable way. So it's, it's essentially what Biden did with this uh, decision, uh, that, which was focused primarily on the pardons, was to begin a process of what looks like movement toward decriminalization. Apparently, none of the people convicted under the federal law are still in prison. So mm -hmm. just practically, what good is this for them? Oh, it has a lot of good because remember, you've still got your record. There are people who for many, many years uh, have carried, you've got to check a box someplace. Have you ever been convicted of a crime? Have you ever served time or something like that? This is an ongoing problem in a lot of employment issues, housing issues, uh, a host of other concerns. So it's real. This pardon has a genuine positive impact in the lives of a lot of folks. And, and not just at the federal level uh, or not simply for you know the federal crime. It's also that the District of Columbia is under federal law and so at, or under federal oversight uh, because it should be a state, but it's not a state. As a result, 
you've got thousands of people there who have uh, convictions that will also be impacted by this. And so, you know, what Biden did here was a really interesting act. He, he kind of went to the, uh, what we think of as the edges of his power. He didn't do everything that people would like him to do, but within a reasonable standpoint, he went to where he could on the pardon. He began what's understood as a decriminalization process, and he urged governors around the country to follow suit, to do what he has done. Yeah, now this is big. Let me just underline that because, of course, almost everybody who has a conviction for marijuana possession, it was under state law, not under a federal law. I mean, unless they were arrested in a national park or something like that, mm-hmm. they're up on state charges. Some states, several states, have already changed the law about marijuana possession, but what is it, 31 have not. So this is a live political issue for for millions uh, of Americans. It's a very live issue because uh, in the vast majority of states in this country, marijuana still remains illegal. Um, it doesn't mean that, uh, that there's clear enforcement patterns. Some states are tougher, some states are, are weaker on it, but the bottom line is that as long as marijuana remains illegal in this country, it is a, a tool that police departments can use. Often when they pull you over and they've got nothing else on you, you know, maybe you had a loose license plate or something like that, you were pulled over, they didn't find a gun, they didn't find anything stolen or anything like that, but they found a little bit of marijuana they then charge you with that and you end up going into the criminal justice system. And in fact, John, I can give you the example of my own state of Wisconsin, that a lot of folks in Wisconsin who have received gubernatorial pardons from Governor Tony Evers have had busts for possession or for you know small crimes, you know, limited crimes related to marijuana. And these issues have stuck with them. I mean, these are people sometimes in their 50s, 60s, that uh, it's an ongoing impact. And also, uh, one of the things is that if a governor signals that he or she is going to do pardons, then the the good news there is that that also is a signal to police departments that, you know, there's not much point going forward with this. And so you even in states where you may have a Democratic governor and a Republican legislature that doesn't want to legalize, it's a tool that begins at least to open up the process to some extent. And so there's a lot of good that comes of this. Uh, And I give Biden credit for attempting to loosen up the laws. You say Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers has issued, what is it, hundreds of pardons. Uh, Tony Evers, of course, is up for re-election in a crucial swing state in America. Is this issue a part of his campaign? Yes, it is. The governor has been very supportive of of legalization and of a lot of steps in, in the right direction. So too has his lieutenant governor, Mandela Barnes, who's running for the U.S. Senate. So there's a clear divide in Wisconsin. It's a really fascinating thing. Wisconsin has a Democratic Party that has been for quite a long time open to decriminalization or legalization, really wanting to move in the right direction. It has a Republican leadership in the state legislature that is exceptionally resistant. It's even been resistant to medical marijuana, which you know, dozens of states have done. And so that divide is, is a fundamental issue in the governor's race. And intriguingly enough, the Republican nominee for governor, a guy named Tim Michaels, a millionaire, lives most of his time or has lived most of his time in Connecticut, but moved back home to run for governor. 
He was interviewed about this recently and said that he's against legalization because of you know what he believes is a slippery slope, i.e. the old argument that marijuana is a gateway drug to all the other drugs. That's the argument you heard you know, back in the 1950s or 1960s, right? Yeah. And, um, but that's about where the Republican Party in Wisconsin is. And if I can last, throw one last thing on that's interesting about Wisconsin is that Wisconsin, Southern Wisconsin, our most populous part of the state is right over the border from Illinois. Illinois has done full legalization. It's got, you know, they're selling marijuana all over the place. And Evers, who's a very straight shooter, our governor makes the argument that we're just losing a ton of revenue. Um, you know, it's like money, money that the state should be getting. Well, I understand Wisconsin is not the only state where marijuana legalization is a political issue uh, this uh, season. I understand that in the Pennsylvania Senate race, uh, Dr. Oz is attacking our man John Fetterman for his many years of advocacy of legalization and expungement. Yeah, Dr. Oz, who, who uh, has some record on his own side of, of being sympathetic to a more liberal view of marijuana, has, has seized on this as part of the Republican attack on Democrats who support criminal justice reform. There's been some really over-the-top uh, suggestions by Dr. Oz and by his allies and supporters that Fetterman is some sort of dangerous, crazy character for supporting legalization of marijuana, which Fetterman strongly supports, and also for supporting expungement of records. Uh, but to his credit, Fetterman's probably better on dealing with this issue than almost any, any candidate of either party in the country. Uh, he just doesn't back down. He, he embraces it uh, heartily. And in fact, he even has t-shirts that uh, advertise that he is the candidate who supports legal weed. And Fetterman is sort of showing Democrats how they might be able to deal with this issue. And I want to talk about Nevada just for a minute here. The Nevada Senate race is one we've become worried about. The incumbent first-term Democrat, Catherine Cortez Masto, is suddenly in a tight race with Republican Adam Laxalt. He's pulled a point or two ahead in most of the recent polls. At a Laxalt rally last week where Trump himself was the headliner, Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville, argued that Democrats are not just soft on crime, quote, they're pro-crime, they want crime. They want crime because they want to take over what you got. They want to control what you have. They want reparation because they think the people that do the crime are owed that, close quote, Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville campaigning in Nevada for Republican Adam Laxalt. I wonder if you have any comment on Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville. Well, the senator has not distinguished himself in, in the uh, upper chamber of the Congress. It's an extremely disturbing connection to make. It's, we shouldn't make light of it as, as troublesome as, as the senator has been. The fact that he is trying to suggest that, uh, just trying to suggest all the things he's trying to suggest, uh, is, is part and parcel of what the Republican campaigns have been like in Senate races across the country. It is true that the senator from Alabama may say it in incredibly, you know, sort of gruesome ways. But the fact is that highly sophisticated, very, very capable campaign consultants for the Republican Party are running ads uh, against candidates in races, Democratic candidates in Senate races and House races across the country that, that really are overtly racist. 
and that uh, leave little doubt that they are trying to suggest that Democratic candidates, and particularly Democratic candidates or people of color, are somehow dangerous or troublesome or, or should be considered. We've seen it in Wisconsin, my home state, where uh, the campaign against uh, Mandela Barnes by Ron Johnson and his allies has been so stark in its uh, exploitation of the crime crime issues uh, that it, it, in many senses, uh, harkens back to what you saw in the late 1960s and early 1970s from uh, people like George Wallace and Richard Nixon uh, at their worst. And so uh, the Republican Party has crossed the line. And it is easy to point to, uh, you know, a senator from Alabama says something that that's deeply offensive. But I think the deeper thing to understand is that this is a part of the Republican strategy this fall. And it is something that uh, needs to be called out. It needs to be called out by you and I in this setting. But it also needs to be called out by um, those folks who used to call themselves responsible Republicans. And the fact is, in many cases, the these are folks who are you know, winking and nodding in the direction of these these really over the top and really troublesome campaigns. It's it's a sim it's a symptom of what's happened to the Republican Party. John Nichols, his new piece for the nation is titled "Biden Just Made Marijuana Reform a Major 2022 Issue." Democrats should run with it. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Real Marcus has a new book out. I think it's his best. It's called Folk Music, a Bob Dylan biography in seven songs. Greel, of course, is the author of many books from the classic Mystery Train to the recent book Under the Red, White and Blue, the one about the great Gatsby that we talked about here. He's co-editor of a new literary history of America, 200 essays, 1100 pages. And he's also written the column Real Life Rock for the past 35 years, starting at the Village Voice and more recently at the LA Review of Books. The collection More Real Life Rock, The Wilderness Years, featuring 73 columns from 2014 to 2021, was just published. We reached him today at home in Oakland. Greel, welcome back. So good to be with you again. Well, this new book is not a conventional biography. As Joyce Carol Oates says on the back cover, it combines the most candid sort of memoirist prose with truly inspired comments on the songs. And I would add some amazing true stories along the way. The first song in this biography of Bob Dylan is Blowing in the Wind from 1962. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? We all learned to play it and sing it, but you say it was your least favorite track on the album, The Free Wheelin' Bob Dylan. And you say that almost 50 years later, you still didn't like the song. Why not? Well, you know, against so many remarkable things uh, on his first album, it seemed tepid. The melody seemed simpering. The song seemed pious. It seemed to talk down in a way. It just put me off there. And it also seemed so obvious. You know, it was a song about the civil rights movement. And, you know, why is why are some people treated badly? Isn't this terrible? It just struck me that there wasn't much there. 
But then, after more than 50 years, you changed your mind about blowing in the wind. Please explain. Well, you know, it, it was sort of the context changed my mind. I was asked to write an afterword for a children's book of the song for little children. And the idea was that an artist would depict the images from the song and the lyrics would run at the bottom of the page and there'd be a CD of the song bound into the book. But it was really for six-year-olds. That's what it was about. So I'm supposed to write an essay, a very short essay, for six-year-olds, you know, kids who just learned how to read or are still learning. And I listened to the song, I listened to the song, and I tried to think, well, what is a six-year-old or a seven-year-old going to be hearing when they listen to this song? And I realized that for a very young person, it might be describing a world that was utterly strange to them, that didn't make sense, that, you know, was opening doors that they'd never even perceived war doors. And the song be began to grow as I listened to it. It became not obvious. It became a struggle. How do I get this point across? And I wrote a paragraph about how when this song was written, Black Americans, and I left it at that, um, you know, weren't allowed in many parts of the country to vote for president. They weren't allowed to go to movies. That you never saw their faces on television. Um, they, they weren't uh, allowed to make a decent living. They couldn't live where they wanted to live. And I said, you know, things are different now. But this was your country. This was your parents or your grandparents' lives. This really happened. And, and then I imagined a kid saying, but the song doesn't talk about any of those things. There's nothing in the song about black people can't live where they want to live or vote for president or any of that stuff. And I said, well, you know, that's right. This is what I wrote. That's because Bob Dylan was able to write about one thing in words that could be about many, many other things, too. There are people in this song. There are birds. There are mountains. There's the ocean. There's wind. There are questions and their answers. Why is the world the way it is? Why is there war, cruelty, and hate? Will this ever change? And so today, when people feel that they are not free, when people feel they're being treated unfairly, whenever they know that people only see what they look like and not who they really are, they can listen to Blowing in the Wind, and they can say, yes, I am in that song. That song is about me too. And so now, you know, I hear the song completely differently. I love, I love hearing other people sing it. I love to hear what they do with it, how they get it, how they miss it. It's alive. In the rest of this chapter, you talk about many other performances of the song by lots of people. Of course, it started out as a hit for Peter, Paul, and Mary. They sang it at the March on Washington in 1963. Odetta sang it, and Sam Cooke, and the Staple Singers, and I didn't know, Marianne Faithful, Marlena Dietrich sang it in German. I didn't know that Elvis sang it. You found a tape of Elvis singing it at his house in Bel Air in 1966. And then, of course, Dylan himself sang it many times. 
One of the greatest things Bob Dylan ever did was write the book Chronicles Volume 1, which was published back in 2004. And there he writes about how in the 1980s, quote, my fame was immense, could fill a football stadium, but I felt done for, an empty, burned out wreck, close quote. It was in that era that he sang Blowing in the Wind for the biggest uh, live audience probably he ever had. This was at Live Aid in 1985, fundraising for famine in Ethiopia. He sang at a JFK stadium in Philadelphia uh, with a live audience of 89,000 people. Maybe that was the football stadium he referred to in Chronicles. He sang with Keith Richards and Ron Wood of the Rolling Stones, all playing acoustic guitars. They were introduced by Jack Nicholson. What was that performance of Blown in the Wind like? Well, it was absolutely awful. They seemed unsure of themselves. They seemed as if they didn't really want to be there. They looked terrible. Dylan looked as bad as he's ever looked. And he's had some bad look periods, which has nothing to do with being old or gaining or losing weight or anything like that. It's just, you know, the soul or the lack of it coming through his face in a given moment. And this was a bad moment. At one point, Dylan breaks a string on his guitar. Ron Wood hands Dylan his guitar and goes ahead and plays air guitar. Ron Wood of the Rolling Stones playing air guitar to Blown in the Wind. And it was just a shambles. What was so fascinating to find out was that a tape of the rehearsal that Ron Woods and Keith Richard and Bob Dylan had done before the show, where they're trying to work out an arrangement of the song. How are we going to do this? What's it about? And there's just this fantastic camaraderie between them. And they're all in love with the song and they all take it as a challenge. How are we going to do that? You know, how are we going to do it with just acoustic guitars? And they just keep talking about it as if it's an absolute touchstone for all of them. Something they've all grown up with. Dylan, too. One of the most beautiful things he said about the song at one point is he said, you know, when I play it with Joan Baez, it doesn't even occur to me that I wrote that song. It's just like like an old folk song that was there. And I happened to learn it and I played it. Lots of other people learned it. And this is saying, you know, I wanted to be part of the folk tradition, the anonymous folk tradition, where there's songs out there and anybody can sing them in any way they like. And I became part of that when I sang this song, as opposed to when I wrote this song. That's a marvelous thing to say. Another remarkable performance came in 1997 when Pope John Paul II invited Bob Dylan. And afterwards, the Pope gave a sermon about the song. And what did Pope John Paul II say? Well, he actually didn't perform Blowing in the Wind for the Pope. He performed a couple of other songs. But the Pope says, after Dylan's performance is finished, you know, one of your representatives has told me that the great question of your life is how many roads must a man walk down? And the Pope says, yes, that is a great question. There's only one road, the road of Jesus Christ, because he is the life, he is the truth. 
And, you know, it wasn't very long after that, that Bob Dylan would be saying exactly the same thing. He would be saying, Jesus Christ is the light. He is the truth. He is the way. I just thought that was a fabulous irony. <laughs> yeah, I did um, too. Not so much for Bob Dylan's life. It's pretty much an open secret that this book is about songs. It's not about Bob Dylan's inner life. It's not about his private life. There may be descriptions of what kind of situation he was in when he wrote or performed a given song. But really, the question is, what sort of person would one have to be to write this song or to write that song? Because these songs brought something new into the world. And that was a responsibility of a single individual, not you, not me, not anybody else. And there's a way in which the cliche of he made that song his own doesn't apply to the dozens and hundreds of people who've re recorded Bob Dylan's songs and Blown in the Wind in particular. They're all referencing an original. And yet there is still this sense that it isn't an original at all, that it was always there. There's one other performance that you talk about in your book, Folk Music, a Bob Dylan biography in seven songs. November 4th, 2008, the night Barack Obama was elected president. Bob Dylan was playing a live concert in Minneapolis at Northrop Auditorium on the campus of the University of Minnesota. You were there. Tell us about that performance of Blowing in the Wind. Well, it was an extraordinary night. It's election night. The newspapers are telling us that Barack Obama is going to win the election. Nobody believes it. Everybody is terrified that it won't be true. I think people are afraid that it will be true. What will happen? The, the United States electing a, a black president? Is the country going to split apart? I mean, it was a tremendously fraught night. And yet here is Bob Dylan performing at the University of Minnesota, uh, where he had briefly attended the first time he had ever played that campus in his entire career. And, you know, at, at the end of the show, he gives a little introduction. He talks about being born in 1941, being a little kid, when the atom bomb was dropped and living in a world of darkness ever, ever since. And then he says, but I think things are going to change now, echoing Barack Obama's campaign slogan. Then he sings Blown in the Wind, and then the show is over. Well, it, it ends about seven or eight minutes before 10 o'clock. And 10 o'clock is when the networks are going to call the election because all the polls will have closed. And so everybody files out into the entrance area of Northrop Auditorium. It's very, very big. And there's a huge TV set up uh, above the crowd. And at 10 o'clock sharp, the news comes on. Barack Obama has been elected president. Bob Dylan arranged his show so that there would be time for people to file out and see that and join this historic event. He didn't, you know, stop playing at 9.30. He didn't go five minutes too long. He had it timed perfectly so that his show would join this event and this event would join Blowing in the Wind. 
you end your new book with the song Murder Most Foul from 2020. That's the song that begins, It Was a Dark Day in Dallas, November 63. The CD has JFK on the cover. It was Dylan's first original music released in eight years. It was the longest song he ever released, almost 17 minutes. You quote Elvis Costello saying the song brought him to tears and saying, quote, what I don't understand is saying it's about JFK. It's a bit like saying Moby Dick is about a whale, close quote. Elvis Costello is talking, I think, especially about the second part of the song where Bob calls into Wolfman Jack requesting records to be played. What did he request? Well, you never know who the voice is. You don't know who's speaking. There's a way in which this entire song, all 17 minutes of it, or 17 years, or 17 lifetimes, depending on how you hear it, is really in the voice of President Kennedy after he's been shot the first time, but before he's been shot the second time. In other words, he's not dead. He may be unconscious. He may be completely um, frozen in shock. And yet his brain is saying, what's happening? Why is this happening? And he's saying to his assassin or his assassin, boys, do you know who I am? I mean, do you realize what you've just done to me? So it may be JFK calling into Wolfman Jack, not Bob Dylan at all. And it could be Bob Dylan. You just don't know. Somebody is calling into Wolfman Jack saying, you know, got to hear this song. You've got to play this and you've got to tell the story. You've got to tell the story of the whole country. You've got to somehow capture this moment and redeem it. And so I want to hear Mystery Train by Elvis Presley. I want to hear John Lee Hooker. Uh, I want to hear Stevie Nicks. One person said, I wonder how Stevie Nicks is going to feel being included in this song. Everybody else is dead and almost everybody else is. And it goes on and on and on through folk songs and uh, Only the Good Die Young by Billy Joel. And it's just this wonderful kind of where's Waldo of, of our shared culture. And you don't want it to stop. You said, well, what about this? What about 40 miles of bad road? What about Waterloo Sunset? You know, what about this may be the last time by the Rolling Stones? How could you leave that out? And you realize as you listen to the song that you don't leave that out. This song goes on forever. What's the last song that the person calling into Wolfman Jack requests? Murder most foul. Play murder most foul. Wonderful. And of course... To make it work, as soon as the 17 minutes of Murder Most Foul ends, you should have another 17 minutes. It should just go on and on and on. Griel Marcus, his new book is Folk Music, a Bob Dylan biography in seven songs. He's written almost 20 books. I think this one is the best. Griel, thanks for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Well, thank you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. 
D.D. Gutton Plan is editor of The Nation, Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation, and Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.